they're worshiping a holy God. God wants to dwell with them, but how does God expect his people to live so that he can dwell among them? Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 17th episode of Working with the Word. This is the third episode of our series on the whole story of the Bible. In the past two episodes, we've seen how God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. In today's show, we're talking about what is probably the least appreciated part of the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, specifically the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, that's a lot of material to cover in the next 30 minutes, but remember, we're still looking at things from Earth's orbit, so we're just going to get a big picture of what these four books are about. We'll talk about questions like, what's the value of reading the Law of Moses? How do these books apply to me as a Christian? And how do they move the whole story forward by pointing us to Jesus? If you're like us, you've struggled with reading through these books. So we hope the next few minutes helps you get the most out of this important section of the Bible. Most of what we're talking about today is law, the you shalls and you shall nots of the Bible. But there's also quite a bit of narrative in these books that continues where we left off in Genesis. So let's start there. Like Emerson mentioned, we're talking about the law and thinking about some of those laws, not really specifically listing all 618 or so of those out, but thinking about what these sections are and how they help us in our study of God's Word. But those laws are not just randomly there on their own. They take place and are given within the story of the Bible, within these sections of narratives. We need to remind ourselves of some of those stories just briefly here. We're not focusing on every narrative detail from Exodus through Deuteronomy, but here's a brief reminder Again, Israel, also known as Jacob, has been in Egypt, or his family has been in Egypt, there at the end of Genesis. This leads to their enslavement and the death of many Hebrew baby boys in the beginning of Exodus. And as God hears the cries of his people, he's going to raise up a deliverer or a leader through the man Moses. And while it takes some time for that to come to fruition, eventually we see that Moses is going to be this one who comes to Pharaoh and speaks to him, and God is going to show his power over the Egyptians through the ten plagues. And after we cross the Red Sea, we come to Mount Sinai, where they stay for a year when they receive the Ten Commandments, as well as the rest of the law, and also they break the covenant and the commandments with God with the golden calf story. Eventually, in the book of Numbers, we're set out to the promised land, but when we get to the ten out of the twelve spies who bring back this fearful report, the people lose faith in God and are punished to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Even Moses in arrogance rebels against God and is not allowed into the promised land. And so we see in the book of Deuteronomy this sermon or maybe a series of sermons that Moses gives to remind this new generation of Israelites who did not die in the wilderness, who are about to enter the land about the law, what is in the law, and their part of the covenant with God to love and to honor and obey him. Again, that's just a quick look at what happens narratively in these books. There are a lot of other things that happen, more specific details that are important to know, things that will connect to the New Testament. We're focusing on these books of the law, meaning the law that God gives through his prophet Moses. So for the majority of the rest of our time, we want to think about how do these books fit into the whole story. Now, as we talk about the law 
and what that phrase means and, and what it is. Some people divide the law into different sections. We might sometimes divide it into this is a kind of a moral section, this is a religious section, this is a civil section. People may have their issues or may not have issues with that particular division, but as we're defining the law for this episode, the most simplistic definition we could think of would be this. The law was given to the people in this time to help them to think about and to think like God. Yes, that's a pretty zoomed out view of what the law meant for these people, but that's the general idea, that here are God's people who are meant to be distinct from the people around them. And for this time period that the law is in place, it is going to cause them to think about God and to think like God. So let's think about these particular books to see some things that will help us as we prep our minds to get into talking about these books. Yeah, as we've said, I mean, there's so much material to cover here, so many laws to talk about, and it's easy to get lost in the weeds whenever we're reading through these books. But I think that there are two major hurdles we have to address when we're trying to understand these books. And this is where we get out our red pens and mark up our presuppositions so they don't obscure God's Word. And in order to do that, Remember, we've talked about presuppositions before, the importance of our red pens, being honest with ourselves. What are some ways that my preconceived ideas might discolor or might influence the way that I read these laws in a way that is not what they were intended to be or how they were intended to Mm -hmm. be read? So those two major hurdles, uh, I think one of them, probably the, the most common one, is reading through the lens of a modern 21st century lens. That is, we judge the law based upon our sensitivities, our social and political issues, and our preconceptions. One of the most common ways this comes out is this question uh, sometimes critics of the Bible ask, how can the law be good if it condones slavery and has a low view of women and and a host of other issues? And, And that's a really that's a really valid question we have to try to wrestle with today. But I think there's a couple of ways we need to answer that. Number one, the law of Moses was never intended to be replicated in the 21st century, okay? It it was not intended to condone American slavery that happened during the Civil War times, for instance. It's just not intended to be taken that way. It was a law that was written to a specific people for a limited time for a specific purpose. And the second thing I'd say about that is that when you actually compare the law of Moses to laws that were contemporary, like the Babylonians' law or the Canaanites' law, God's law actually raises the bar for the value of human life. There are things in the law that show God expected his people to actually treat their slaves better than their contemporaries and treat women better than other societies treated their women. And also there's a fairness present within the law of God that you don't see elsewhere and that you actually see obscured later on. For example, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, there's a law that says, if a man and a woman are caught in adultery, then both of them are to be brought forth and stoned. Now that might seem a bit severe for us today, But if you go to John chapter 8 and you read the story of the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, kind of testing him with a hypocritical mentality, the question is, well, well, where's the man? You know, they've developed a double standard within themselves, and it was not intended to be that way. God actually had a single standard 
for the woman as well as for the man. And so instead of reading the law with our 21st century glasses on, we actually need to read these laws with the question, you know, what did this look like to the Israelites in the year, I don't know, 1400 BC, however that is dated? How did they read it? And how did they read it, especially compared with other nations' laws? The second major hurdle I think we have to wrestle with is when we're reading the Old Testament as Christians, sometimes we, in the back of our minds, we think, well, the law has been fulfilled in Christ today. And so, yeah, I, I, I might get some value out of this, but we don't really need it today. And to that, I would say that, yes, the law has been fulfilled in Christ. I mean, read the book of Romans, Galatians, Hebrews especially to see that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that it cannot teach us anything today. That wasn't the way the apostles talked about the law. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul is instructing Timothy to read the scriptures. He says that all scripture is breathed out by God. And of course, at that time, that would have included the Old Testament. So certainly the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are still God's word. And so he was expected to understand them as God's word, to use them in his preaching and teaching. And another example, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul uses examples of the narrative portion, things that happen in the wilderness and the wanderings and the rebellion and the complaining and the idolatry and the immorality. And he says that these are examples for our learning today. And so instead of asking ourselves or telling ourselves, you know, we don't really need this today, let's try to change our perspective. There's great value instead in reading the law as if we were an Israelite, from an Israelite's perspective, even if we are Christians today who live under the new covenant, and ask ourselves, how would they have understood it, and what would they have learned? And I think that gives us, puts us in a better position to approach this with the question, what principles do I learn as a Christian about God, and about sin, about forgiveness, and holiness, and the relationship that we have with other people from the law. When we approach it from that perspective, I think we're prepared to learn about how this really points us to Jesus. So that's what we want to focus on in these kind of more specific sections of some of these books. We want to think, how do these fit into the whole story? So the book of Exodus, we begin really by thinking about Exodus 19 and Exodus chapter 20, where we set the foundation of God's law with the Ten Commandments, and this law that is going to be part of this covenant that God makes with the people of Israel. When we read the story of the Ten Commandments, we see that everybody agrees to this, but then out of, it seems, fear of God's presence coming down on Mount Sinai, and the fire, and the thunder, and lightning, and just kind of the terror that would naturally come over people in that moment, they tell Moses, why don't you go up on the mountain, and why don't you get the rest of the laws from God? So we see as we move forward in Exodus, we get to these sections like Exodus 21 through 23, which have these awesome chapter headings that go things like miscellaneous laws. You know, I'm just so ready to get in. <laughs> Very helpful, Yeah, I'm so right? ready to get into this section and to read about all these random miscellaneous. That's maybe sometimes how we think about that. Again, we might be setting ourselves up in a, we need to pull out our red pen and say there, am I just thinking, oh no, not miscellaneous laws. It may be true that these laws, or it is true, these laws do not hold us under the same standard since we're not Jews living in this time period. But 
God is speaking to his people, and he begins Exodus 21 by saying, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. He's going to talk about things like how to establish and give out justice. He's going to talk about Sabbath laws and feast laws, how to treat your neighbors or sojourners or widows or orphans or poor, and other laws as well. We see that in the book of Exodus in chapters 25 through 31, God gives the designation for how the people will worship him as he gives them the designation or the plans for how to build the tabernacle and all the instruments and things that are related to the tabernacle and to their sacrifices and to even what the priest will wear. And then later we read in chapter 35 through 40 the construction of all of these things, especially as I think about those sections, those sections about you know how they're going to worship God, the tabernacle, how that's going to be made, what type of thread is used, how many layers, stuff like that. Here's what I notice. God's pattern is not to be messed with. We read about these two men, Bezaliel and Eliahab, who are going to be in charge of constructing all of this. And they don't hold a town hall meeting to say, hey, everybody, God gave us the blueprints and the design patterns for you know, what the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to look like and what the priests are going to wear. But if you've got suggestions for alterations or changes, feel free to come in to change this. Even this section here of laws of how to build and how to worship God with these things and what they'll look like and where they will be, we see that God's pattern is not to be messed with. God gives a command, something like, You shall have no other gods before me, or do not commit adultery, or you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan that was shown on the mountain. We see that that command must be followed. Now, when we read Exodus, we might think, okay, what's the whole story connection? There are a lot of stories that point us to things in the New Testament. One thing we want to draw out from here, though, connected to the law, is the lawgiver, Moses. Moses receives the law from God, and then he comes down from the mount, and he gives the law to the people. Now, that may be part of why we call it the law of Moses, but it is still God's law that's being given to the people. We look in the New Testament, and we see that there is this moment that Jesus goes up on the mountain with three of his disciples. He is transfigured. He's changed. And then there's Moses and Elijah there as well. You have the great lawgiver and this great prophet who would speak messages of God. In those moments, the disciples are saying, let's build three tents or three tabernacles kind of as a place to worship and honor and respect you. And then God speaks to those people at that time, and he says, no, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You have this new lawgiver fulfilled in Christ. Christ is going to give what are the teachings of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. We see Moses is an important figure in giving the law. But Jesus is going to be that great lawgiver that's referenced in the New Testament as God is going to give that law that we are under today. Leviticus is a a challenging book. Leviticus is basically a manual for the Levitical priests that were ordained in the book of Exodus regarding the sacrifices that they would offer and the, the feasts that the Israelites would celebrate, even the conduct of the priest and the Israelites. Can I say that Leviticus is probably the most boring book in the Bible? I mean, am I allowed to say that? Um, It really is hard to get through as you're reading the details of these laws. Leviticus was not just a book for the priests, though. The laws that are found here regulated everything about the Israelites' life. It regulated the foods that they could eat, clean versus unclean foods, clothes that they were and were not to wear, how they were to handle even sicknesses and sexual behavior. And the main theme of Leviticus, I would say, is what you find in Leviticus 11, verse 44. And it's kind of randomly placed here, at least it seems, in the middle of the food laws describing 
unclean versus clean foods. In the middle of all of that, God says to his people, be holy as I am holy. And that same statement is repeated several times later on in Leviticus. Leviticus helps the people see that they're worshiping a holy God, an awesome God. And as such, you know, God wants to dwell with them through the tabernacle. But how does God expect his people to live so that he can dwell among them? They must be holy and live and conduct themselves in a way that relationship can continue. And so that's really the theme of Leviticus. And a part of that is Leviticus 19 verse 18, which is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament, which simply says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so as God dwelling among them, part of that is them treating each other like they should. So Leviticus is certainly an important book because it teaches the people and us today how to be holy and love others. And so how does Leviticus kind of connect to the whole story? What's the whole story connection here? I wanted to focus on Leviticus 16 when Moses is describing what the high priest is to do on the Day of Atonement. This was, it seems to me, the most important feast day, the most important day, single day out of the entire year um, for the nation of Israel. Because on this day, and only this day, was the high priest to enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle. And he was first to bring a bull, sacrifice it for his own sins, and then he was to bring, uh, sacrifice a goat as a sin offering and send another goat into the wilderness, kind of representing them taking the sins away. And so the priest would have to offer sacrifices for himself, then for the people. And you connect that to the book of Hebrews, especially chapters 9 and 10, when the writer there is using that to help us understand Jesus' sacrifice better. And the point he makes is that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, but Jesus' blood can. His sacrifice can fully take away our sins, and Jesus has taken his own blood into the greater high place, which is heaven itself. And so Leviticus helps us see that we need that sacrifice of, of Jesus. Now, as we move into the book of Numbers... As we begin the book of Numbers, it begins with counting the people. You have these two great censuses in Numbers chapter 1 and then Numbers chapter 26. So you've got this counting of people. You've got a kind of instruction plan about here's how you're going to get from point A to point B. You look at those first 10 chapters specifically, which seems to be a lot more of kind of law sections, some sections at the end. You've got stuff about here's what tribe is going to go first, here's what tribe is going to go after them, here's where the tribes are going to settle around the camp, here's where certain people from the tribe of Levi are going to either to carry the instruments or carry the tabernacle or carry the ark. You've got the end. These are the boundaries of what's going to be the promised land and some laws about how territory is going to be divided. When I read the book of Numbers, especially some of those sections, I kind of want to raise Emerson, his Leviticus, and kind of put Numbers as potentially the most boring book of the Old Testament, uh, especially in some of those areas. Can I cite Numbers chapter 7 and you go and check that out? All of that aside, though, we see here there are important things to learn from the book of Numbers. To me, when I read the book of Numbers and I see some of the big lessons in there, it does seem to come from the more narrative areas, and you have these kind of one-after-the-other rebellion stories where people either are breaking God's law specifically or they're doubting that he's going to keep up his end of the covenant, 
And so because of that lack of faith in God's covenant, they're kind of just throwing his laws out the window and throwing God as leader out the window. So we're seeing there's not a proper respect of God. And we're seeing that order is being established, and it's God who gets to set that order. And this is where each tribe will set up camp. This is what family will do. Uh, This is what their responsibilities are going to be. So these law sections of numbers, they seem to just drudge on maybe in a sense. And there may be things that are even, it's very specific to Israel. But I'm reminding myself that God is over his people and that God has given these commands here. And they might not be as earth-shattering our mind as things about don't commit adultery or don't commit murder, but they're still important for his people to follow. Now, as I think about a whole story connection, again, I'm kind of leaning a little bit more into some of that narrative section where we talked last week about God being a God of grace. We also saw him being a God of justice, who's going to exact his wrath upon the sins of people. We see that throughout the book of Numbers over and over again. We see people who sin. We see God then enacting judgment upon them by either causing the earth to open up and swallow people or causing snakes to bite people that they become sick and die, or he's just going to cause people to wander around for 40 years until they die. But also, we see God's grace at times throughout the book of Numbers, and not as in a contrast or distinction, but we see it along with his justice as well. We see a God who is ready to show that steadfast love based on the covenant he's made with these people. One of those narrative descriptions, or those stories we can't get to in depth, would be Exodus 34, where God describes himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He talks about he's going to not let iniquity go unpunished, but he also talks about how he is a God of steadfast love. And that's really brought out in the book of Numbers. And that's something we see about God throughout the whole Bible. That is not an Old Testament or New Testament edition. There is God who is always God. So moving from Numbers to Deuteronomy, full disclosure here, Deuteronomy is one of my favorite books of the Bible. But I think the biggest struggle we have when we get to Deuteronomy is just this feeling of redundancy, right? Mm-hmm. All right, you've made it through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in your in your reading, and cue thunderous applause, because that's a big accomplishment, right? And now you get to Deuteronomy, and now you've got to read the laws all over again. <laughs> cue audible groan, right? Uh, so so why is this book even, even here? I think one thing we need to realize is that the repetition was needed for them, because this is a new generation of Israelites. The first generation has all died in the wilderness over the past 40 years, and now this new generation is preparing to enter the land. And so they need to be reminded of this covenant and the laws that God has for them. Deuteronomy is less of a code book. Leviticus, you know, definitely reads like a a law code, like a lawyer's manual or something. Deuteronomy is much less that way. And it's more of an extended sermon or speech that calls the people to renew their faithfulness. And the way that I like to think of Deuteronomy is that it puts life into the law. The word heart is used about 47 times in the book of Deuteronomy. And that shows that the real point of the law was to train the hearts of God's people to love him. Sometimes we get the impression or we say, wrongfully so, I think, that the Old Testament was all about the sacrifices, all about the external things, and not really about the internal things. And I think that's just totally false because Deuteronomy emphasizes the heart. And that's really the theme of Deuteronomy, is what we find in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, Love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the way Deuteronomy unfolds this is really neat. There's a really neat structure, but Deuteronomy is kind of built as a commentary on the Ten Commandments. So in chapters 1 through 4, you've got a brief summary of of the wandering in the wilderness. And then in chapter 5, you've got the repetition of the Ten Commandments. And then from that point, all of the Ten Commandments are fleshed out in the rest of the book. And the number one of these is to love God above all else, which coincides with the first commandment, which you shall not have any other gods before me. And so how does the book of Deuteronomy move the story forward? What's the whole story connection here? Well, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 in the book of Matthew chapter 22. He says, this is the greatest command that God has ever given mankind to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. So of all the things God wants us to do, this is it. The goal of this entire story is to mold and shape our hearts to love him with all that we have. So as we think about all of these books, maybe one thing out of those books, there could have been other options we could have picked. As we think about this section of scripture, these four books as a whole, how are they connecting us to the whole story again? We see that God is holy and so are his people. We'll talk about that more in just a moment and how that applies for us even as Christians today. But something we're seeing here is again the problem of sin. We were introduced to sin in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, and we see sin being a regular problem for man throughout the book of Genesis. And we really understand here the cost of sin and what it costs people. We think about how God has given these instructions, and it's more than just you need to obey these, but the people are expected to obey these commands, right? These are things that they're not to do and things that they need to do. And when they break those commands, a penalty is brought before them. And if it's not going to cost them their life, then how are they going to come into this right relationship with God again? We see all of these sacrifices. We see you know, things like the Day of Atonement or sacrifices they may make because they're unaware of their sin or sins that they do know about and how they need to find conciliation with God through these sacrifices under this particular law. But we think about the whole story and see how sin has cost so much. We think about that leading us again to Jesus and think about how he is described as the Lamb of God. We see John calling him that in John chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 36. We see that making us think about the sacrifice that's coming, the fact that Jesus had to give his life, that his blood had to be shed, so that way we could have our sins forgiven. Our sins come at a cost as well. We're seeing that sin has always had a cost, and that cost was ultimately fulfilled and paid through the blood of Jesus that we come to in faith now in response and obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's plan. I think reading the law and what you just described there, think about how personal the cost of your sin was. You know, as an Israelite, when you sinned, you had to take an animal from your flock, the very best animal that you've got, and bring it to to sacrifice it. That's a personal cost. And so I think the law, thinking about how it connects to the whole story, it really shows us that we need to take sin personally and that we need Jesus as our sacrifice. Mm-hmm. What, as we close this, before we get to our challenge, what's the big application for Christians today in the law? There's a lot we could talk about again, but thinking about the point of all the minute details of the law, that's the biggest thing we struggle with is slogging through all those minute details. 
again comes back to this theme, be holy as I am holy. The details were intended to teach the Israelites to think about God and to honor him in everything that they did. Included all of their lives, all of that, they belonged to God. And the same principle applies to us, even under the New Covenant. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Even though we're not under the old covenant today, the principle still applies to us. And the point is that all of you belongs to God. Be holy, as Peter says, in all your behavior. We can't compartmentalize our lives or section out pieces that belong to me and pieces that belong to God. All of it belongs to God. So that, again, takes us back to the two greatest commandments that come from the law. Love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Much of the detail of what God expects of us has changed under the new covenant, but this has not. So as we get into our challenge for this week, we don't want to go back and live under the law again. I think that's part of what we see in the New Testament is that's not the way we need to be living and behaving. The whole part of being a Christian is to not base our lives upon the law, especially base our salvation upon the law. Mm -hmm. And a challenge of something like read all of Exodus through Deuteronomy before the next episode that you listen to, whether that's a week or whether that's within the next five minutes, is kind of too broad and really not practical. So what we want to encourage you to do for our challenge is really focus in on Leviticus 16 and all of that stuff about the Day of Atonement and compare and contrast that with Hebrews 9 through 10 and everything that said about Christ's blood and his sacrifice. Consider what had to happen every year for the people of Israel to find that atonement versus the atonement that we find through Christ's blood and sacrifice. And this reminds us, as we continue to read and study the law at times in the future, that the law was not the end goal. As we finish talking about Deuteronomy today, we see that God's given the law, but there are still promises to be fulfilled. There is still this covenant that we're looking to is this new covenant that has not yet arrived or come. We have this covenant, you know, the law of Moses, but there is still a to be continued as we close this chapter of the whole story. So we'll encourage you to keep reading, keep studying, following along with us as we're trying to understand the whole story. And as we know that God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to him, not through the law, but through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and ascension of his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for tuning in to Working With The Word today. For the next two episodes, we'll be taking a short break from our Whole Story episodes as we have had opportunity to sit down with some men for some interviews that we are really excited about. Next week, we'll be talking with Rick Ligon about how to study the Bible and how that's going to help us make our faith our own. Maybe you've struggled with that before. You feel like your faith is just because of what your parents or your preacher or other people in your church have told you. How do we take our faith and make it our own? And how can our study of God's Word help us with that? We really encourage you to tune in for that discussion with Brother Rick. The following week, we'll actually return to the law section of Scripture and talk with Brother Tommy Peeler about how studying the law can help us as we study our Bibles in view of the whole story. He'll help us to understand a little bit better. Maybe some things that Emerson and I couldn't quite get to or didn't quite explain maybe as well as we hoped. Brother Peeler will help fill in some of those details for us. 
Be looking for those interviews in the upcoming weeks. We know these men will provide beneficial help to all of us. But until then, if there are questions or topics or books of the Bible you would like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.